This episode of The Spoken Tour is brought to you by McCormick's and their world-famous dehydrated beef stroganoff flavor packets of powder. When your meals are lacking any and all actual nutrients, be sure to reach for a packet of McCormick's beef stroganoff flavor dehydrated packet powders to make up for all that real food flavor with nothing but pure sodium. Just take it from one of our lifelong customers. McCormick's. What do I always grab when I'm trying to impress my friends and turn our normal food into a pile of mush? Yeah, you guessed it. McCormick's Beef Stroganoff Powdered Dehydrated Packet Flavor Blasts. Thanks for turning all of my meals into mush, McCormick's. Warning. This product is made only with genetically modified ingredients and contains milk, soy, dairy, eggs, bleach, hair, and gross shit. Yeah, it's all staticky still. I don't know what it is. Oh, dude, you got it. Hold it right there. It is June 21st. We're coming at you from Carlsbad, California, and we are officially coastal. And it's officially summer. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Happy first day of summer. Happy longest day of the year. It's a good day to not be riding. Yeah, hell yeah, bro. I mean, it'd be a good day to be riding, but... I enjoy the fact that we're not riding yeah. today. So we got to the coast uh, last Thursday in Ventura, California, and it kind of marked a big milestone for the trip. Um, reaching the Pacific Ocean was kind of like the the end of the beginning, I guess, for us. It was the, the check mark that we've been waiting to tick off uh, the box for a long time. And in the process of achieving that goal, we have seen a lot of stuff. Yeah. We've gone from mountains to desert to coast. We've gotten our butts kicked in all three of those regional <laughs> yeah. environments, I would say. Yeah. Uh, the mountains, on the very second day of the trip, we were slogging through four feet of snow. We got held up in towns due to major blizzards. Yeah. And uh, we had some nights where we had trouble sleeping because it was so cold. <laughs> and then gradually came out of the Rockies, um, up and down canyons in Utah, uh, equally difficult, yeah. equally challenging. Lack of water. Yeah. Just a new type of heat that we had never experienced. And then our route selection put a smack dab staring down the face of a 100-mile sandwich which was something that I don't think either of us were anticipating when we started. We didn't think that we were ever going to have to do something like that. No. 90-mile day, 100-mile day, 90-mile day, self-supported, loaded to the yeah. rafters with Karen, water yeah, and ten snacks. 10 liters of and, water, all of our food, and knowing that it wasn't a matter of, oh, well, let's try and ride 90 miles. Let's try and ride 100 miles. It was, 
we need to ride 90 miles or we won't have water. We need to ride 115 miles or we won't have water. We need to ride another 90 miles or we won't have water. And we're talking 90, 95 degree heat. We got caught in a a, a dust devil tornado. Oh, like, God, almost picked us up and yeah. blew us back to Utah. But uh, the praises were pretty high when we, when we crossed the border into Cali and knew that it was just a matter of days until yeah. we were getting officially coastal. And, uh, yeah, we felt like now after pulling off some of that stuff, making it in one piece, we felt like we've earned maybe a little pat on the back. And... Um, we are pretty excited to actually have a collection of experiences and memories that is worth looking back on now that we're more than a single day's drive from yeah. from the starting gate. Yeah, it's been, uh, you know, we, we, we've been telling people that this Denver to San Diego piece is like the test period. Mm-hmm. And now we have no more test period. Yeah. We're crossing into Mexico in about a week. And what, we what? have to draw from these you know, past six what weeks. What grade would you put on our test? What, what did we score on this test? Oh, well, you know, I, I think a solid D. D team. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, we did. What do they say? D's get degrees? Is yeah, that how D's, it goes? D's get degrees. Perfect. Um, I mean, we didn't have any, like, catastrophic failures of any sort. No. We just had a lot of micro failures. Yeah. That we resolved, with, you know, with, as they came. We resolved with duct tape and beer mm-hmm. and string. And 800 milligram ibuprofen. 800 milligram ibuprofen. Yeah. Uh, but we made it. And I think uh, it is a testament to the fact that we made it, or it's a testament to the style that we made it in, that um, a day after hitting the coast in Ventura, California... We just randomly lucked our way into this incredible opportunity to tour the headquarters of Patagonia. And it came about because we were just outside of a Chipotle in Ventura, and a woman walked by, saw the bikes, struck up a conversation with us, and she happened to know um, not only a Patagonia employee, but one of the longest tenured employees at the company who is in charge of their internal archives. So we were pretty much getting a tour from the master historian herself. Yeah. And uh, we, yeah, like Ty said, we were able to spend what we were told was going to be one hour um, unfolded into nearly four hours of walking through Patagonia's history, uh, sitting around a lunch table with just some amazing folks, and uh, just getting getting to really look into the culture that Patagonia has fostered. Um and, you know, not to sound like Patagonia groupies or anything, but, you know, they really have created this kind of subculture in the world of adventure, mm-hmm. um, whether that's, you know, climbing, biking, hiking, fishing, whatever it is, uh, the gear that they've, the gear that they have created is more than just gear. Uh, it, it stands for this, this gnarly group of people who are willing to test the boundaries and push the limits of adventure mm-hmm. and, They've like just they've made a a very conscious effort to put a voice behind their gear and to make sure that that voice is loud and it is saying things you know it, it's announcing things that matter to them um, regardless of how those things are perceived by the general 
um, industry of you know apparel and outdoor gear and I think that that cultural piece that is so unique uh, is what makes it stand out to people like us who not only want uh, bomber gear and they want things that work and function but if all those things can represent a, a network and a framework of values and principles that you agree with all the better why wouldn't you support um, something like that and uh, we were lucky enough at the end of this amazing day to sit down with Val and Terry uh, the two like Ty said kind of Patagonia historians that are um, sculpting this archive of all culture gear any and all things Patagonia um, so we really hope that you enjoy the interview that we were able to sit down and have with them. My name is Terry Lane and I've been at Patagonia for just over 31 years and I started in dealer services and then I moved into doing marketing materials and um, my most of my career has been visual merchandising and the last couple of years I've been blessed with this amazing job of working in the archives with Val. And Val, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Val Franco, and I have been with Patagonia over a period of 40-some years. I started uh, before Patagonia was founded, and uh, was watched that unfold. Uh, left and came back in 85, so this last stint has been about 32 years, working alongside Terry in different ways. Um, my background when I got here was I knew how to sew, and they didn't. So I watched the beginning happen here and came back in 85 to do product development and design uh, for about a period of four, um, maybe nine years. And then I landed in product graphics for 25 years. And then um, they uh, offered me this great deal to um, help start up an archive. So when Terry said she worked in the archive, she actually helped found the archive. Mm -hmm. That's what we've been doing for the last two years. And we now realize it's become an archive, museum, and library for mostly internal. And we're having a lot of fun putting up the old stuff. So what were the early days like when Patagonia was just getting off the ground, when it wasn't even Patagonia yet, when it was still um, Chouinard equipment and um, Great Pacific Ironworks? Uh, what, were those, what were those early days like? What we had cake fights in the retail store <laughs> before they opened the next morning and we would climb because we knew how to the top of the roof of the retail store and um, sort of get into trouble with the police because we were too loud and faked our way down from that so it was kind of wild and um, and also we celebrated a lot we we did a lot of parties um, in the courtyard and behind the courtyard you were just there mm -hmm. and um, one thing I know happened and I didn't realize it wasn't normal but we had an Argentine working with us his name was Julio Varela and he was a machinist but he knew how to cook and he knew how to how to make pig and he would bury the pig in banana tree plants Whoa. and he would we'd put out the old Chenard crates and sit around and the meat was great um, and his chimichurri sauce was amazing but all I can remember is, I don't remember any side dishes. I remember tequila mm -hmm. and pig. <laughs> so I think you know, we were 20 years old, 30, you know, not, not older than 30, and we, um, we just knew how to party and celebrate and welcome the people in, much like you guys came in today. It was a, a lot like that. Passerbyers would, would find their way there from different countries because they wanted to see the, the ironworks or the shop. Yeah. And um, 
people slept in the courtyard, and uh, the Chenards themselves would sleep in the tin shed at some point until Melinda built a um, an apartment in the basement of the retail store, which I think you're going to go to next. Um, it was a small group, and when you came to work, you didn't really know what you were going to do, so you just came prepared to work. Yeah. And um, if there was a shipment that had to be made, you'd ship. If um, something needed to be sorted or tagged, you would do that. Everybody had a role, but they um, worked together to help, you know, the company mm -hmm. progress. Earlier today, you talked a little bit about the standard of excellence that you held yourself to, and that personal sense of accountability down to the the individual stitch. Could you speak to that a little bit? Because that was that was really amazing to hear. Sure. Uh, my role was to uh, come and run the sewing shop, and at that time we were making foam back cagoules and a lot of the packs, the ultimate tooly that I showed you here, and um, things were being contract sewn. But we started, you asked me what the spec sheets look like, and they were sort of notebook, binder, mm -hmm. you know, college ruled notebooks, and our handwriting, there were no computers. In fact, we, we had one that we named when we finally got it, uh, Roscoe. Um, so all we had to go by was the um, the way the guys in the shop worked, and Yvonne would would um, forge a piton, and he would sand it down and clean it up, take it home and personally inspect it himself. Mm -hmm. And um, then later we were making slings and harnesses, and it, right away all of us knew that if we made a mistake on the gear that we were sewing for the climbers that were using the hardware, that they could die, you know, that they could fall from somewhere because the stitch wasn't right. So we, we constructed our clothing much the same way a blacksmith would make a piece of equipment mm -hmm. and that was sort of embedded in um, the quality of the garments we didn't always get it right <laughs> we have um, a problem selling rugby shirts that were made with sleeves that were too long the first time we tried to show them off sew them offshore um, but overall I think that's st stuck with us and that leads to the guarantee that we currently have on the product we would stand behind everything we made so we had a sense of putting together the gear much like it was hardware instead of software. Yeah. And so we had this intro into uh, Chenard's Gone Soft, or from hardware to software, because that's what we would call the clothing at the time. There were no computers, so there was no word like software for they computers. Had different meanings. Then, yeah. Had different meanings. Mm -hmm. So we called our clothing that was softer than hardware software. So yeah. from hardware to software is what, what happened. And um, it was... Um, it was a great beginning, you know, to uh, really a lot of collaborative work. And um, one thing I realized now in retrospect that the people I was working alongside, and I didn't quite put it together in the earlier days, but Tom Frost was an aer aeronautical engineer out of Stanford. And Peter Carmen, who helped set up the sewing shop, was a Harvard graduate in electrical engineering. And of course, it was Yvonne and all his friends that would pass through. And the skill set was such a high level. Yeah. And those were our mentors. One of the things that I am interested to hear, um, what is the biggest lesson that you guys have learned from seeing this company progress, um, you know, starting to create something that hadn't been created before, so kind of trailblazing, pioneers, seeing it turn into this, you know, internationally recognized super brand. Um, what, um, what's been your most valuable lesson as being part of that? Yeah. I I can't do talk to the trailblazing part quite to Val's um, degree, but when I started in 1986, um, 
probably I would say really not till 1995 did I see the trailblazing quality in the company. Before it was kind of the fun hogging quality. Mm -hmm. We were a company, we had a fund director, which was very unique. But really in 1995, we um, started going to our, making the move to organic cotton. And that was a huge move in the industry. And one day Yvonne came and said, it's like, we just had a couple of items in 1995. And he said, we're everything that's cotton is going to be 100% organic. And that was sent tremors through ballots and production. I mean, that was huge for them. For me, it was just a marketing story. But I do remember Yvonne saying, making the right choice, doing the right thing. I've always had success. Yeah. Where another company might say, oh, we're not going to do organic or we're not going to, you know, we see it now in industry where people don't want to do the right thing because it costs money. Yeah. And Yvonne, when he did the right thing, he made money. And I think that's the biggest takeaway Yeah. I probably have from this company that I can think of off the top. I think that's the most inspiring part as a consumer. Yeah, and Absolutely. I think also we're not a publicly held company. So I told you about some of the margins that we did on the um, image gear that we did at the time. And uh, even if we're close to losing money or not making any money and it's still the right decision, we'll ride that way for a little while until we can correct it. Mm -hmm. So it's not always about the bottom line. Yeah. I think we've had our times when it's been closer to about the bottom line, but mostly we do the right thing and know uh, the outcome will be good. It's about the cleanest line. Mm -hmm. I think that's the name of your guys' blog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to ask. It's collectively, you have about 70 years of experience with Patagonia. Some of those earlier days were spent with the some of the most legendary climbers of our time. Um, we got to ask, are there any like moments where you were kind of in disbelief that you were in fact in a situation you were in, any good story, crazy story, something that happened where y looking back you're like, wow, yeah, that was part of my story with this company that I'm still working at today. Does that resonate with either of you? Of course, there's many stories, um, and I, you know, we just finished visiting Tom Frost, and um, the Ultimate Thule is something he and I worked on together, and there's pictures all over this archive of us doing that together. So for me, um, you know, my pictures everywhere in this company because I happen to be there during a three-day photo shoot. So it's easy for me to reflect back on those times, and you know, working with the, you know, those great climbers and their skill set was really. Um, something I didn't realize at the time, I just walked in and just everything, everybody seemed to be equal and normal and mm -hmm. so they were great climbers but you know, it, it wasn't, didn't really impact me till later. And just two days ago we drove down from Oakdale which is where Tom lives and I think that that just was an interesting um, you know, full circle to sit with him and visit with him, take some photographs with him, look at photographs with him and just kind of reflect back on the 40 plus years ago. Um, and it happens every day in this archive um, with different people that come here. So that maybe the time span isn't as long, but I think I think we both pinch ourselves when we leave here at night, thinking this is the coolest job, you know. Yeah. And what's cool about it is we're able to just create it. We use our skill sets, and it is what it is today because not only Terry and I, but we have a team of people that we work with that help to establish this archive, and every day we can reflect back on moments like that. You know, mm -hmm. sitting with Tom Frost and looking at the picture of us building the Ultimate Thule, and then talking about it just two days ago. 
Um, but you know, Fred Becky was here, and um, and he doesn't hear so well. But you know, he's sitting in this chair right next to you, and um, we're telling story and looking at old equipment. Or Alan Steck was here, and we've had Peter Medcalf here. Um, you know, some of the greatest climbers will come through, and then also a lot of the contributors, like. Um, well, Terry, Terry's had a close relationship with Rick Hatch, who's been gone for 13 years, but he was one of our national sales manager, but a great runner and um, felt compelled to bring his gear home mm -hmm. and loaded up the crate you're sitting next to with a bunch of gear that, um, that was from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and, and he brought it home. So sitting with him, reminiscing about the... Uh, pastimes and stories that like oh my gosh can you believe we did that or this and you know we've ridden a roller coaster here it's been good times it's been bad times yeah and uh, it's it's a tribe it's more of a community very cool I love I love that word tribe you, you said it a few times today and that, that's resonated with me that's cool we all have them don't we yeah mm -hmm. um, one final question um, as people who are just, you know, in the infant stages of our professional career, um, as two queens of all trades, you guys have pretty much done everything here. Um, any, like, single standout piece of advice for people who want to dive into something creative, they want to get their hands dirty, doing something that, you know, maybe hasn't been done in that way before? Um, any pieces of advice to just launching into the unknown? Well, <clears throat> I just learned something the other day, and I think um, you need to ditch the fear and uh, really go for it. Uh, what can happen? That, that's probably a, a recent lesson. Yeah. Follow your heart. Don't look for the salary, you know, and climbing the ladder. Do what brings meaning to you, what, brings, what you're passionate about, and the rest will come. It's kind of like doing the right thing, and good things will happen. And I think another thing I'm just happening, learning in this archive is um, to listen. And uh, and you guys have done a great job listening to me jab on it. And, and listen to your elders and take something from that. Mm -hmm. Alan Terry, thank you guys so much. Uh, we did not ever think that we would have that kind of opportunity to sit down and uh, talk with anybody who had such an intimate knowledge of uh, a company that both of us really admire and respect um, and that last piece of advice that you gave us was so per it was exactly what we needed to hear right now and and then what Val said to compliment that of forget the fear that, yeah that is such a big part of the first leg of this this first tiny leg of this trip that we've completed when we have thousands of miles of road and trail ahead of us because there's so many thoughts and wormholes that we can travel down but there is that piece of just you got to forget the fear and you got to just go for it and yeah I don't think it could have come at a more perfect time conveniently so we had a listener send in an audio clip with uh, a quick little story and a question uh, the story has to do with our last episode's theme of the ultimate spaz-off. So we hope you enjoy uh, the, a quick little spazzy story and a great question sent in by a one Mr. Graham Ward from Colorado. I believe it's Warts. Warts? Graham yeah. Warts? Yeah. yeah we, we don't, we don't know, know who this guy, this guy is, um, but 
apparently he's a big fan of the show, and he sent us our first listener clip, yeah. and we're grateful for that. So Claims he's friends with the two of us? Yeah, I, I, he seems weird. All right, well, here it is. Hello, Spoken Tourists, D-Team mates, Tommy and Ty. This is Graham speaking, a.k.a. Daddy. Um, just finished listening to episode four, and I was going to give a brief little example of my own spaz moments. Um, I have one nearly every day, to be completely honest, um, as I sit by myself behind the wheel of a stupid freaking car. Um, but, uh, you know, one in particular happened last week. I was, you know, on my usual commute home, had left work at my unfortunate usual time of around 4.30, just right smack dab in the heart of traffic, um, a rush hour, and, you know, sitting through traffic on 36, and then I hit 25 for a brief, hot, slow stint, and then hit 20 for another even slower stint, and then, or sorry, 70 for an even slower stint, and then, um, you know, cruised through a few streets in Denver, but I had, on this particular day, gone through and made it down to Denver after sitting for just about an hour in traffic, which is, to those who know me well, uh, probably my greatest bane of my existence. Um, and then I get to uh, just a series of seemingly endless stoplights that are um, continually turning red right as I arrive. Just slowly simmering the soon-to-be boil that is coming over me. And then to just totally just juice it and top it all off, I find myself inches from crossing train tracks when the arms start to come down, the barriers. And, of course, I get stopped behind a freaking train about a mile from my home. And there was a man employed by, I presume, the city of Denver, but who really knows, and he is out there with a stop sign in front of the barriers, um, clearly stopping people from ending themselves um, at the just sheer frustration of making it almost home and deciding to drive in front of a train instead. Um, but just the audacity that we need um, a gentleman out there with a freaking stop sign in front of a moving train, which is also in front of two um, impermeable barriers. Uh, so I was uh, just boiling, and I started yelling to myself um, and, of course, cursing this man kind of under my breath, I'll be honest, for this one. He's a, he's a big boy, kind of the, um, the classic you know, construction build, um, total beefcake, really. But uh, I would have stood no chance had I spoken my true feelings about him and his work. Um, but yeah, the thought of you guys there um, after hearing the spaz moments. I would like to hear um, you guys take on some, uh, some thoughts. Uh, like, what the hell am I doing, you know? And uh, two of my good buddies are out there just having the time of their lives. And obviously there's some challenges along the way. But um, it's... Uh, it's difficult sometimes you know trying to deal with that and and everybody has their own reasons myself included for you know sticking with the job and I feel like I need to stick with mine for a little bit but um, I'd be curious to see if you guys had any thoughts on any feelings of you know being trapped in your job feeling trapped in your job and 
um, you know, just needing some sort of change and kind of, uh, I guess, walk us through what, what led up to the trip. And But seriously, Graham, uh, thank you so much for giving us that insider's look into your crazy psycho mind and your <laughs> spazzy nature that we all know and fear to some degree. Um, and thank you for taking the time to uh, record yourself and send it in. It's not easy, is it? Recording yourself and putting it out there for the world to hear. But but to answer your question, uh, or to begin answering your question, we wanted to share with you this quote that we just happened to stumble upon uh, in the last few days as we were kind of putting this episode together in our minds. So, Tom? Yeah. Uh, my friend Ryan showed us this this quote by Andy Earl, uh, and it's geared towards climbers, but, you know, pretty any, any much... Any dirtbag out there can relate. So here it is. Somewhere in every climber, there is an aspiring dirtbag. A part of you that just wants to sell it all, simplify your life, and just climb. I think following your passions is one of the best things you can do in life. But I also believe balance between family, work, and hobbies is what brings true happiness. There are points in your life where you can dedicate your all to something and still be happy. But if you don't return to a balance at some point health or circumstance will eventually take away that thing you built your life around. So again, that was Andy Earl with an awesome quote about kind of the ode to the dirt bag. Um, but yeah, it, it, that, that piece of balance, uh, we're, we're, we're finding that we're in, in a goofy stage of life where it's like, there's kind of all the pieces are coming together and, uh, responsibility is slowly being like added to the equation um, and just like Andy Earl said at some point you've got to find a way to balance everything um, and I think for me at least those pieces uh, of work family hobbies they didn't nothing was totally meshing in a in a perfect way at this point and uh, then the idea of this trip came along and it seemed like something, uh, going back to Andy's quote, it seemed like something that I could give my all to. And for the time being, giving my all to it would make me really happy. And uh, just got absolutely gung-ho about committing to that while the other pieces of my life were still in flux because once enough responsibility is added to all of those pieces, they, in a way, they get weighted down, they get locked in, and it just becomes harder and harder to separate yourself from them. I can relate a little bit to that, that sense of, of feeling trapped. Um, you know, there's the, the more and more people that, uh, I've talked to in, in life and professions that, you know, I admire kind of folks in those dream jobs, uh, they don't feel trapped. You know, they've they have found a degree of of that balance, of that kind of mystical balance that all of us twenty somethings hope to one day find. Because people our age, we're we're in we're in that stage of of careers and jobs where it's it's kind of bottom of the totem pole, time to pay your dues. Yeah, it can totally suck, um, but also at the same time, it, it's pretty awesome because you learn what you're good at, you learn what you care about, you learn what you want to spend time doing and what you don't want to spend time doing, and that's 
sometimes the most important part of a job that you think you want is finding those things that you don't like doing and finding those things that you do like doing because a lot of the times things that you've never done you enjoy the heck out of and things that you've never done you hate and never want to do again um i mean i was working a your classic nine to five office job um and yeah it was in a field that i enjoyed you know it was in uh the field of kind of general sustainability and there were days when i would kind of sluggishly make my way to my desk and ask myself what the hell I was doing you know why am I sitting in front of my dual monitor screen with a spreadsheet pulled up on one and you know outlook pulled up on the other and it was pretty much just a pattern of feeling like I was not getting things to people on time and stuck in this bionic world of excel um but at the same time, you know, you just got to find fulfillment in that. You have to find the difference that you're making. Um, it's, it's tough to find a job that doesn't make a difference in some sort of way. Whatever that difference is that's being made, um, I think the tricky part is just finding that tie to personal fulfillment. Um, and not to say that I didn't like my job. I really did. Um, and, you know, I could have still been there right now and I probably could have gotten a promotion and gotten paid more money and whatever but it it's not the fact that i felt like i was i was trapped it was just kind of that that scale of life telling me that i needed to weigh a certain area down a little bit more and i needed to feed into that gut that was pulling me up into the mountains every weekend and stay there for a while and and get lost in a new way and get away from the screen and take some time to just really get to know parts of myself that uh, I haven't yet. And, you know, it sounds cheesy or whatever, like get to know yourself, but it's not, you know, that's not the total reason why we're on this trip, not to go on some meditative quest to find this new soul searching sense of self. It's like, sure, that, that kind of serendipitously will happen and develop, but sometimes you just got to freaking send it. You've got to make decisions that are hard. Like the decision for me to actually leave my job never, you know, for, for people who know me, I'm a very, I like to consider myself a pretty laid back person. And I experienced very, very real physical anxiety. I'd, I'd never dealt with any sort of kind of mental, physical um, feelings like that. But it was this overwhelming, totally consuming, darkening sense of anxiety that I was dropping my responsibilities at my job. I was leaving my friends. I was leaving this amazing community that I'd built in Denver um, over the better part of a decade to a place that, you know, I now call home. And I was just leaving that by my own by my own choice. And like it was almost like my my mind and my my gut were 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 like so fervently trying to keep me put but um I just knew I had to go I had to I said I had to let go of that all um and that was hard it's not easy it's not easy actually leaving like the the build-up to actually leaving for me was just terribly difficult um and 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 the universe will conspire against you you'll be you'll be offered a raise you'll be offered a promotion you'll meet someone that sweeps you off your feet you know everything that 
could possibly work against you will do just that. Um, and that's half the fun. That's half the battle. That's half the struggle, which I don't know. It just wraps itself up into this, this awesome little package of the unknown. And that's kind of the appeal of letting yourself feel vulnerable. Because for me, when I've let myself willingly feel vulnerable, um, it's been hard, but that's also the times in life that I've experienced the most growth, uh, personally, professionally, spiritually, uh, vulnerability just has this, this, this way of tearing into the purest sense of self and you're not trying to impress anyone else or you're not trying to act a certain way. Um, vulnerability has this way of showing your truest colors and um, holding up a mirror to you while those colors are being shown. Uh, and you get to just know this this part of yourself that um, is pure. It's just this uninhibited, just raw sense of self. And um, the dividends that come from being exposed to that vulnerability, for me, are totally worth the sacrifice of leaving that community, leaving that job, leaving that paycheck that is directly deposited into your bank account every two weeks. Um, and it just adds, yeah, I don't know. It just adds to this sense of of growth um, on a very basic human level. And it's not, not to say that everyone should do this because it's not for everyone. People make, people feel vulnerable in different ways. Uh, and sure, it's kind of a twisted weird, torturous way of making ourselves feel vulnerable to bike for a year. Um, but for us, it's, it's the right way. Or, I, you know, I guess I should speak for us. For me, that's, it's the right way. It's the right thing. Um, and yeah, again, it comes, it kind of all comes back to that balance because I know that this is right for me right now. I know that I need to do this right now. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't want to say that this is going to be like the rest of my life, some traveling vagabond, because I don't want that. I, I, you know, I want to come back to a place and I want to settle and I want to find other things in life that make me happy. I want to spend more time with my family. Uh, I want to spend more time with that community that I've fostered and grown in Denver. Um, but for now, this is this is exactly where I need to be doing exactly what I need to do. So I know that was quite a lot of rambling and whatnot, but I don't know. I hope it, I hope it gave some more color to the, the question that you were seemingly trying to ask. For me, I didn't really have the similar feelings of anxiety. Um, but I hadn't, um, I don't think my roots were as firmly planted in in Phoenix in Arizona where I left from as Tom's were in Denver I'd kind of been I'd like worked a season in Idaho and then uh, looked at coming back to Colorado didn't really find any jobs that were pulling me back there and then um, going back to Arizona was kind of just like a default plan B and uh, I did end up uh, finding some incredible opportunities there Loved the people that I worked with um, ton of fun to do what I was doing there, guiding trips throughout the Southwest. Um, and 
easily could have stuck around doing it for longer. But Tom kind of uh, came up with this idea. At least I, I, I credit him with coming up with the idea. And uh, it was just one of those questions of, you know, looking at the two choices on the scale and saying, well, why not, why not go for it? Um, I think as you get older and those areas of your life develop more and more, those uh, the responsibilities become heavier, um, you can find a lot of ways to answer the question, why not? But I just so happen to be in a position right now where there weren't too many reasons why not. So um, that's kind of what got me here. And now that I'm doing it, uh, I can think of a few reasons why not, because it's, it's really hard and it's uncomfortable a lot. And uh, but like Tom said, those uh, those things are are worth the discomfort, the, the rewards of the discomfort and be, making yourself vulnerable um, are worth the challenges that uh that come come with it it's just been the rewards are immediately visible and uh like he said it just seemed like something that was the right thing to do right now and who knows when you get an opportunity to uh, to do something like this so why not and graham uh you know haven't haven't known you for pretty much all the over the over the last decade you know there's no doubt in our sneaking minds that uh, you're going to keep doing exactly what you should be doing, even if it does feel monotonous at times. But, uh, you know, you surround yourself with amazing people. Your personality is just one of a kind. Uh, and, I don't know, you have a really awesome way of tapping into that kind of that little heart of heart of hearts that uh, you know is tugging you one way or another. So. You've got a lot going for you, buddy. Do not jump in front of that train. <laughs> Just take a deep breath. Let it go. Think of what an amazing job that that construction worker is doing, keeping you safe. Thank him for his work. And do not go gentle into that good train headlight. <laughs> and please, people, keep sending us audio clips. We love it. We love hearing other voices than, than the two of ours. So thanks, Graham. Cause it's the kindness of strangers that makes the world go round. Tom. They're the strangest people who do the nicest stuff. Do, 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 do. So this week we've got a tremendous list of kindness of strangers. Starting from our uh, previous publication site of Cedar City, Utah, we have met... This really nice guy in a truck who stopped us on the longest day of the 100-mile sandwich and gave us a bottle of water. Ice cold. Ice cold, followed by... Oh, and he had uh, three fingers on his right hand. Yes, three fingers. So the three-fingered man in Nevada. Thank you. And then you. the next day, same thing. Got a couple well, you, more... You asked. Bottles. Yeah, I asked, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, strangers. And then in California... Oh, and then as soon as we crossed the border, stayed in Benton... Uh, we met this wonderful couple, Ann and Walt, of Benton, California. Thank you so much for putting us up, cooking us enchiladas, making us uh, oatmeal pancakes in the morning, coffee, beer, conversation, company. Uh, you guys were great. Thank you. Enchiladas are bust. <laughs> and then from there we went to Bishop. 
Thank you, Jan and Sophie, for the delicious home-baked bread. Sourdough. Sourdough. And those amazing peanut butter, oatmeal, chocolate chip, raisin cookies. From there, it was on to Lone Pine, where we just randomly ran into Sayward, who was celebrating her 65th birthday and didn't feel like doing it alone. So what did she do? She asked a couple of guys with humongous bikes if they would join her. Of course, we said yes. Two pitchers of beer and a plate of nachos later, we had made a really great friend and heard some really cool stories. And uh, when we are back for your 66th birthday in June of next year, uh, we'll stop on down to Cedar City and buy you a pitcher of beer. Thank you, Sayward. We made our way down to uh, Brady's, California, and we stopped at Brady's gas station, home to one of the few remaining um, flying mobile horses. Um, also, thank you to Jack, a.k.a. CJ, a.k.a. Crazy Jack, for letting us camp um behind your tree next to the billboard uh, at your gas station. So, thank you. And free postcards. Yeah, thank you. do free postcards. Um, in Lake Isabella, we received the warmest welcome at any public establishment that we've gotten so far. It was probably the closest that we'll get to a full-on round of applause from a random batch of PCT through hikers. We don't know your names, but you guys, what you did for us was... Remarkable. We do know a few names. Oh, that's um, right. We do. Only trail names. Yeah. Uh, Nature Monster, Flicker, Flicker and Chopsticks. Uh, yeah. So, so t- Ty and I are still working on our trail names, but... Uh... Mm-hmm. Um, in Ventura, thank you. Oh, no, in Bakersfield, uh, we stayed with Emily, Ellie, Mick, and Tank. Thank you guys for giving us a place to crash, letting us do laundry, and drink some beer. Oh, and watch a few episodes and of Master of None. watch Master of None. Thank you, Aziz. Thank you, Aziz. Ventura, big shout out to Rich for giving us a place to crash, as well as buying us a couple rounds at Topa Topa Brewery. Um, what was the name of that IPA? The Chief Peak? Oh, Chief Peak. Peak Highly Chief. recommend yeah. it. And of course, thank you to the Patagonia crew, Val, Terry, and all the awesome folks we met at Patagonia. Also, thank you to Laura, who struck up a conversation with us outside of Chipotle. We would not have had that experience at Patagonia if it weren't for your outgoingness and your willingness to connect us. Thank you. And, of course, thank you to Rachel, my old boss, for giving us the Chipotle gift card in the first place because without that wonderful gift, none of this would have happened. And thanks to the Minnesota crew uh, out in L.A., uh, Dan, Ryan, and Marco for letting us store our ridiculously huge bikes at your house with your psycho landlord. Um, Steve and Jack, thanks so much for shacking us up, showing your city. It was awesome hanging with you guys. And uh, Devin, thanks for inviting us over for a barbecue. Um, Your house is, like, picturesque classic california like what you imagine up on a hill so um thank you all uh it was so great getting a dose of home like that um you guys all rock i love you guys uh preston lifelong friend thank you for putting us up in costa mesa uh also thanks to your roommates for dealing with all of our shit and then on to carlsbad do we know anybody in Carl? oh yeah dad Dad, thank you. Don't know if you've even been listening. Um, <laughs> but And you don't really qualify as a stranger. But uh, we 
are so stoked to be uh, having our little rest week here and um, couldn't be doing it if you didn't let us stay. Um, also, while we've been here, we've gotten some packages uh, dropped in. One from Ann Medici for uh, fueling us up with food, snacks, uh, sunscreen, just all the essentials that make this trip possible. Thank you, Ann. Oh, and to the inventor of the bikini. Um, thank you uh, so much for what you did. And the wearers of the bikini. Yes, them as well. And the makers of the bike paths that go along the bikini-wearing beaches. Also a big shout-out to Carl from Trek for putting up with all my nonstop questions and uh, pleas for parts and pieces and all things related to the 920. So thanks to everyone again, all you strangers and not-so-strangers, for making this trip a little extra special. Um, we really just depend on the inherent kindness of other people to keep our engines running. Um, well, I guess on to the next step. We're, we're crossing into Mexico sometime next week, um, our first international border, and uh, the speaking of the Spanish language. We've been practicing a little bit. Yeah, tons. Except not tons, just little tiny poquitas. Poquitas machachas, capuchanos machachas. <laughs> so we're ready. Si, si, finalmente vaya con Dios. Yeah, vaya con Dios, uh, adios, and... Uh... One more reminder, if you like what you hear, go on to iTunes, give us a review, give us a rating, share this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, Facebook, whatever... We'd love for more folks to hear our story. And we would also love to hear more from you guys. So keep those listener recordings coming in, whether that is stories about what's going on with you, questions about the trip, or in this case, a little piece of original music from our buddy Mike, who is just a genius, and he came up with this week's outro. So here it is. Hope you enjoy.